Welcome back, listeners, to another. Uh, this is not quite an episode. This is another pre-episode for the month of June. Uh, May was a fun month. It was awesome. We had some really good conversations about authorship and ownership. But uh, May is gone, and we're moving on. And for June, we're actually back to featuring our next guest host. I'm really, really excited about that. So before we talk about the theme, uh, let me first just introduce you to the friend of the show and guest host, Dorothy Santos. Dorothy, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am awesome. This is at the tail end of a weekend, and I am very relaxed right now. <laughs> Same. Same. <laughs> I heard you were at a wedding this weekend, right? I was at a wedding and it was lovely. My <laughs> my friends Vivian and three uh, lovely human beings. And I was the officiant. So it was really, it was even more special. <laughs> well, that's a great segue to my first question because you have lots of labels. One of the ones I didn't write down actually was officiant, but we'll add it in there. Uh, a, <laughs> the handful that I have are... You're a writer, a curator, a researcher, an academic, an educator, an artist. Uh, you're currently working towards a PhD at UC Santa Cruz, which is awesome. You just wrapped up a residency at Stochastic Labs in Berkeley. So how uh, how do you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do, Dorothy? Well, I think I've mentioned this to you um, in in, in before, but uh, I just, I'm a mutant and I'm okay with that. I love <laughs> being, you know, and it's so funny because people kind of throw around this word of um, being, you know, cause I'm born and raised in San Francisco. And when people meet me, they're like, oh my God, you're a unicorn. And I go, well, that, that's a nice designation. But I think, I think everyone's a unicorn, you know, I think everyone is, is special in their kind of own rights. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to introduce myself. Usually I just tell people I'm a writer. Uh, I oftentimes don't even tell people that I'm working on a PhD because uh, I, you know, I think, I think it's important to see how people kind of treat you as you are. You know, I don't even like that question. I don't like asking people that question. Well, so what do you do? Usually I, I've kind of changed my framing around when I meet people and I say, what are you passionate about? Because you can kind of discern if you listen really carefully to what people actually do by what they say that they're interested in or thinking about. So, but if people really are hard pressed and just like, no, I mean, well, what kind of things do you write? And, da, 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 and you know, they, they really kind of want to know, well, what, what do you do? How do you make money off of that, et cetera? Then I kind of, then I tell them, uh, yeah, you know, I, I also curate, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> um, and it, sometimes it comes out that I'm, I mean, obviously anyone who's listening to this now knows that, yes, I am, I am those things. I am a PhD student and I, you know, I do also have a part-time job for a nonprofit, an awesome nonprofit um, processing foundation as a program manager. So I, I'm, I do, I do play a lot of roles, um, I guess in my, in my own life, but I think that kind of speaks to a person who's just really interested in a lot of things, someone who's very curious. So hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what are you passionate about then? What is, what's the passion that's driven you into all these different things? I think it's this, I think it's the idea that I can be creative. I, for a long time, just really did call myself an art writer. Sometimes, most often people would introduce me to other people as an art critic. And I, I actually don't like that designation. I don't like calling myself a critic or even if it's a culture critic, I don't, there's something about that 
criticism overall. And yes, I do engage in film criticism, but um, I think what's kind of driven me towards all the things I'm passionate about is the ability, once again, kind of later on in my life, because I'm 40, to, oh, I can actually be creative. Like all of the things that I thought would make me successful are actually kind of the farthest things away from that, you know? Um, I did have the nine to five job. I did, I think a lot of people thought, why are you leaving, you know, something stable to do something a bit more? What people would obviously, well, obvious to me because I, they've expressed concern, what people see as precarious, like living a creative life, living mm. a academic life, a PhD life, living a freelance life to a lot of people that's precarious, but it, a, a lot of people also romanticize it because they say, wow, you're your own boss. And I'm like, yeah, that's a problem because, <laughs> because there's a reason why I didn't manage people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But those are the things I feel the, the pursuit of, of living my life to, to open myself up and, and maybe kind of other like young aspiring artists and writers to a path of really seeking out the things that they uh, like big ideas and things that they're passionate about through, through kind of the, through the creative and, you know, life. I am not telling anyone to go get a PhD. You don't actually need to do that. I, I obviously am doing that because I want to continue on and be an educator and I want to do, I want to do big and big and bold things. And this was a way for me to kind of pursue and do that. But yeah, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's to, it's to be creative. It's to engage in, you know, different frames of mind and mindsets and learn as much as I can. So I, I think that we actually kind of got acquainted with you first because, um, you know, state of the art, uh, originated out of a desire to kind of see what was going on at the intersection of art and technology. Um, we've since kind of opened our doors. I mean, that's still our home base, but we've opened our doors to some, some other more purely creative topics and stuff too. But um, we definitely kind of uh, got closer to you because of this sort of, um, uh, I guess, overlap in the Venn diagram in the sort of art and tech world. Um, and I certainly don't want to pigeonhole you just to sort of that quadrant of of the creative world. Um, but you do have kind of a cool trajectory into uh, both the art and tech world, right? How did you how did you go from studying uh, what, psychology, right, to fully immersing yourself in this sort of creative life? Yeah, no, that's right. I, I actually double majored in psychology and philosophy. And then I always tell this joke of how my mom should have just sent me to art school anyway, because if I was going to double in philosophy and psychology, and then I ended up getting my master's in visual and critical studies. Um, but all while I was doing after after my undergrad, I I worked for a corporate real estate firm. That was really not good. <laughs> I did not enjoy that at all. But I learned I learned a lot of useless information about uh, property management. And, um, well, it's not useless, actually, not if you're in the industry. Right, right, and, right. Um, you know, and I think the probably most interesting group in a corporate real estate firm is like the risk management group, because they have to think of all of the risks. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, that was very short lived. It was like a few years. And then I got into biotech. And then from 2000, my goodness, from 2003 to 2017, I worked in biotech. And 
I, and I did pursue my master's full time while I was working full time. And I said that I would never do that again, but I'm pretty much doing that again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, um, but I, yeah, I mean, it's working in biotech was really fascinating endeavor professionally because I learned how clinical trials are run. I got an under, I kind of acquired an understanding of how science is on the operational side functions, how drugs are brought to market, how they're tested and brought to market. I also learned a lot about the informed consent process. Um, kind, you know, how I learned how marketing works. I learned how research and discovery and development work. And, you know, there's so many sides there. Biotech is, is a world into in, in and of itself. It's, it's like, I oftentimes feel that it's small and big at the same time, because when you work in biotech for a long time, people, you actually see and hear the same names and see the same faces if you're around it enough, if you're in it for enough, it for, for a, a long period of time. And, you know, one of my mentors, when I was working in biotech, I'm still friends with him and he's an amazing human being, but He's like, if you're in it for a long time, you can really grow in it. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, biotech is kind of, it, 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 it's not, it doesn't, it's not too different from anything else, but it's kind of like academia. Once you land that tenure track job, you just kind of stay there forever, you right. know? And I think biotech is a lot like that because my mentor is now, I mean, he is a director, like he's not even leading his own department anymore. He, he leads people who are running their own departments. And when I met him, you know, years ago, he was doing my role, which was the clinical operations associate. I mean, he was just basically, he was helping run the clinical trials, but then he just kind of built up his career over that. And I think in a lot of ways, that rigidity and, you know, um, learning learning kind of the operational side of science really instilled a lot of things. It, it kind of only now after all of these years and being a couple years out of it, did I learn like, Oh, I was doing kind of the whole karate kid, Danielson stuff. You know, I was kind of <laughs> learning the wax on wax off stuff and not knowing that it would, it would help me understand but also critique contemporary science in a way that I never thought would happen because I thought I really did just see it as this is just my job and I'm passionate about art and I'm going to do all the things that are farthest away from it. And then here I am kind of, you know, you know, doing film criticism and science and horror and, you know, and then my own creative work is about speculative, you know, and speculative fiction and science fiction, but within the realm of like gene editing and biotech. So yeah. Yeah. So it stuck with you. Was that something that like, was there something from an early age you think that kind of like scratched an itch both on the technical side? Like was, was, do you think you were always going to find your way to include technical stuff with your creative life? Yeah. I, I, for some weird reason, when I think back and I remember I was actually part of a study, someone did, uh, Oh my gosh. Uh, a friend of a friend was working. She's working on her PhD in education and she's actually studying uh, creativity. And so I was one of her uh, research subjects and something that came up in, and she asked really pointed questions and, and she asked a lot, like 
she actually had to conduct the interview for all of her research subjects over a course of two days because each session was really jam-packed with very as many details as you can remember about your childhood. Hmm. And so when you asked me that question, I thought of my I thought of my interview with her and how one of the things that actually came up was my dad used to he used to pick things up off the street you know, on his walks and be like, make something with this or build something with this. And <laughs> he would buy like train sets, but I would be the one to build it so he could play with it. Like that kind of. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> that's why you have kids, right? Right, right. Do all the hard work for you. <laughs> exactly. And then when I was in high school, I, I did actually have the aptitude towards science. I, I really loved biology and I I don't know where she is now, but Miss Haran was the best biology teacher ever. And I've never told this story publicly, but I was I was uh, given the opportunity to do kind of a junior fellowship or internship at the Exploratorium when I was in high school. But because it, the Exploratorium at the time was so far from where we lived, my mom actually did not let me do it. Mm. And so I've always loved science. I've always loved making things. But I also had teachers that didn't believe in me. I had teachers that blatantly told me, like, you're not going to be a scientist. Like, you're not good at this. You know, I, my physics teacher, you know, I remember getting a D in physics. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, like my first semester of physics, I got the shittiest grade. Well, it wasn't, I didn't fail. But I remember I said, oh, my gosh, I'm really worried. And she says, well, just as long as you don't become a physicist, you're fine. <laughs> and I got teachers like that, you know, that, you know, and all of my teachers growing up actually said that I'm much more talented in the arts and in literature and comparative lit and comprehension. And like, I should do those things, you know, and I, I loved those things, but I also love the idea that I could maybe make something and ha and build technical skills. And so I think it's really fascinating that my life put me in biotech. I'm working for processing foundation, which for people who don't know what processing is, it was a programming language specifically created for artists that wanted to work in code. And it was created by Casey Rees and Ben Fry. And, you know, and then P5.js is another programming language that's JavaScript based on JavaScript. And that's created by Lauren McCarthy. And working for the organization, but working with these in amazing individuals, like I never thought that I would do those things. I never thought that even as a program manager, I do have to have a command of, well, why is this important and know how to frame that, not just for funders, but for people who are interested in volunteering, community members who really want to, they just want to be involved. It's like, I'm kind of that, I, I liaise in addition to Joanna Hedva, who's um, they are the director of advocacy for Processing Foundation. But yeah, I, I always felt to circle back around to your question. I always felt at a very young age that I loved all those things, but I also just wasn't given the opportunity to excel in them because I don't think that people, I mean, even my mom, like my mom was legit scared because my, I was a really horrible tester. So <laughs> mom was legit scared for me. Like she thought, Oh my God, there's something wrong with my child because she scores so low on these tests on these standardized tests. But I I'm whip smart at certain things. Hmm. And the things that 
I had a really great command of my mom was like, so, oh God, why do you have to be so good at art and literature or reading and writing? And like, why can't you be good at the sciences? And, and then the, the science that I was good at it, it, it's like, it's, it's never, you know, I think it wasn't, I wasn't that, I wasn't the best at chemistry and physics, but for some weird reason, I just, I always loved bio. I, 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 I really loved um, biology and I still do, you know? Yeah. Just sticks in your brain for some reason. It does. Yeah. You know, so. I, I'm always curious to, to ask this question. Do you think there's um, like, what do you think the crossover is for how people think about um, like, do you think there's a mental space that's similar or equivalent between tackling a technical problem and tackling a creative problem? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I definitely have a fascination with neuroscience and cognition. I wish that I had a straightforward answer. Um, I know that you're asking more, not from the technical side, but more from this kind of abstract conceptual side. And my gut reaction is like, yeah, hell yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I also think, and there's something I always, I, I've, I've said this to several people, but this is, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't, if, if a neuroscientist is listening to this, I would hope that they correct me. But to my knowledge, I, from my understanding, your frontal lobe isn't fully formed in, until about your 20s. And so technically, you know, your frontal lobe is responsible for a lot of the ways that you kind of solve problems. So how then does that develop over time? You know, are, are there certain I've always wondered about that myself, you know, because my gut reaction must be that there is some kind of combined space, you know, um, in people's minds that have that that where that does come together, maybe faster or maybe there's, you know, um, there's an aptitude for a different type of combined, you know, uh, like logic or the way that people like, um, you know, uh, innovate, you know, around problems, you know, but, uh, I do believe in that because I, I've, I've seen that myself. I've seen people who are really great at solving problems at, for some strange reason, they're able to kind of look at a problem, solve the technical aspect of it, but look at it and say, Oh, but what are the ramifications of this? You know, like, this problem can be solved, but then what is kind of the, because it's hard to kind of do that in a dual manner. Mm -hmm. Like, I, like yeah. that's when you think about it in the long term, I don't know too many people like that, but the people that I do feel are a lot like that. I think a lot of it is because they have a command of how their creative side can step in and do that. Yeah. Um, I know I've totally, you know, bigged her up already, but Lauren, I, I, I have such a, you know, I'm so lucky that, you know, she's both a colleague and someone who's become, you know, uh, a friend. But I think one of the things I deeply admire about her is she has she has that ability. It's like kind of magical. And then but also, you know, I mean, my friend, my you know, the 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 friend that I uh, married. Um, well, I didn't marry her, but you know, <laughs> officiated. I, I, I officiated their wedding like Vivian is another really brilliant human being that I feel has, she, she has a very, she has that kind of uh, ability to do that as well. Like she can, she's highly organized and she's very deliberate and intentional, but she's still expansive. And I don't, that to me, it's like, you know, I, I don't, I think 
it's that it also takes just like a lot of practice. Oh, here's the last thing I'll say about that. <laughs> oh my God. I just thought of um, someone and I, I totally forgot her name, but she's a mathematician. I met her on a fellowship project with through the UC, through um, the Humanities uh, Research Institute. And I had the opportunity last year to kind of sit through um, uh, this experimentation kind of workshop with these other brilliant people. And to answer your question, the reason why I think it's possible is because, oh gosh, and I, I really want to include her in the show notes somehow. If I, I don't know if she, she's a mathematician, but she has the capacity to listen to, this is kind of wild. She has the capacity to listen to a podcast and read at the same time. Uh, whoa. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> that, that, and actually comprehend both. Like she can tell you what the podcast is about and then simultaneously tell you what the book she's reading is also about. I have difficulty doing uh, just one of those things with uh, <laughs> with adequate comprehension. I'm not. I'm actually the opposite. Um, what I can do is I can listen to a podcast twice and only understand half of it. <laughs> no, but I I I totally get you. I to- because I was when you asked the question, my gut reaction was like, I know it. I know someone who actually has the capacity to to do things that take um you know interpretation and i think one of the things that because i'm also studying uh in, in addition to film and digital media i'm i'm trying to do my designated emphasis in computational media so i'm studying a lot of game mechanics so how mm. do different types of uh modes of games work you know if you're doing interactive fiction hypertext fiction role-playing games like what are the types of things that you actually have to consider when you're constructing your game and even like analyzing something like what are the quirks of a game and what makes a game really like um what makes a game kind of playable but not just once but like why do people return Mm -hmm. to some games you know and um i think one of the things that came up was you know um this idea of being surprised all the time or or like this capacity of Mm. of um, it's just enough to like you're you're led through enough tasks in a game where it's like you can comprehend it and then you get to a point where you have like a gap in the understanding and that makes you want to keep playing it. And I I mean I think of things like Westworld. Like I love watching Westworld because that's basically a big game, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And right, right. you know, both on the the literal and but also in the figurative sense, but I mean I get it. Like but I was really trying to think hard because I, I know that that's possible, but you know, or like I, there was this video I saw, it, I saw this video last year where there was someone who had the ability to write, um, with both hands yeah. and it's, and it's legible and beautiful. And I'm just like, I mean, how, I wish I had that skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've seen, um, I, I think there's a whole bunch of experiments with people who have split brain. So, um, where either by birth or because of surgery, they that so the corpus callosum is like the bundle of nerves that connects the two hemispheres of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll cut that, um, like that's kind of a last resort surgery for people with really bad epilepsy. Um, nice. but also some people, it's just a, a um, like something that can happen at birth that it just doesn't uh form right. 
And a lot of people with uh, split brains can do that kind of thing. But what's really fascinating about that is that they'll actually have um, observably like kind of two different personalities, one for each half of the brain. Um, And there's some really interesting research going on around that that um, theorizes that basically every human, you know, that has a lot to do with our inner conflict, that you actually kind of have two different uh, personalities in your head that are constantly sort of jockeying for, um, for like processing power and for, you know, actual say in what your, uh, what, what the end action is going to be. It's interesting stuff. It is. I mean, oh, we can talk for another five hours. <laughs> I mean, just because there are so many things that, I, I mean, I'm about to get deep and maybe TMI here, but, you know, I think I told you this, that I almost died in 2010. I don't think you told me. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I feel like I've told you so many times. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have bonded so far. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I I feel like, well, the reason why I say this is because um, I there are certain... Um, well, anyway, it was like a routine surgery, but instead of, and I've written about this in, in a piece that I, 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 I wrote about it in a chapter for an anthology. I kind of, the introduction was about kind of, I became really fascinated with machines after that happened because it was a machine essentially that kept me alive. Um, but then the thing that prevents it. So anyway, the, the, what happened was the, I was under a general anesthesia, but then there was like a local block that they administered. And mm. then, but instead of going down my neck and then down my right shoulder, cause I had shoulder, um, right. I had an operation on my right shoulder instead of going down my shoulder and down my arm, it actually went the opposite direction into my spinal cord and it shut down my respiratory system. Ooh. And so I actually, um, but I, the thing that happened so vividly in my mind that I remember was I woke up on the ventilator and you're not technically supposed to do that because you can actually have like uh, cardiac arrest because you're, if you're kind of, your heart starts racing and it's like, you can't stabilize it. That could actually lead to like, I mean, cause I was shocked when I woke up on it. I didn't realize that I was, that a machine was, that's the reason I was breathing. Right. But the reason why that's not supposed to happen is they, they, they check it in theory, they check it, they check if you're able to breathe on your own and then, then they remove you from the machine. Right. But woke up on it. It was so strange to have a nurse calm me down. And, um, the kind of the trippy part of it is, uh, years later, uh, my mom actually had right. She had surgery performed by the same surgeon and she had the same exact nurse. And it was Ah. a trip. I was like, Wow. And then when I, the nurse saw me, she's like, wow, I can't believe that this is your mom. You're like, this is so, <laughs> you know, and she said she, and she remembered me. She actually said, she's like, you know, um, oh my God, I totally remember you. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is, um, everyone's bodies and brains are so different because years before that, um, uh, like the way that my brain processes, I, you know, I, I haven't been to an audiologist after that happened in 2010, but I'm actually curious. I mean, really just to go for shits and giggles to see if I still have this ability, but I'm sharing this with you because it's so pertinent is, um, I went to an audiologist because I had to get tested for, um, cause I suffered from, I suffer still from really horrible motion sickness. And so I think that he, my, 
my physician was scared, like, oh, maybe there's something that we need to check out. Maybe there's like liquid or like maybe we need to to see like we need to do balance testing on you because maybe that's the problem. You're maybe that's the reason why you're getting these headaches and da 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 da. There was nothing wrong with me, but one of the tests that was conducted was I had to follow a red dot with, you know, um, with my eyes in this like spinning chair. It was like, oh, it was so horrible. And the person who tested me said, oh, I have to share with you. This is a really strange phenomenon, but your eyes went directly, your eyes went to the spot of the red, of the red light of the red dot almost always two seconds before it got there. So it's like you, your eyes or your, your brain knew where the red dot was going to go. Huh. And that was weird. You Whoa. know, that's what I mean that there's all of these kind of, I, I, I really did want to actually get into to neuroscience and, and things of that nature, because even after that operation in 2010, I am so convinced like that there's something different about the way I process things. Hmm. Um, but that's a whole nother podcast and a whole nother show and a whole nother quirky <laughs> kind of thing to get into. But I'm like equally as you interested in kind of what happens to our brains, you know, when, you know, I don't, I, there must be some kind of, you know, longitudinal trial about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got to get into that. That's an interesting question. <laughs> oh, for sure. Anyway, sorry. That was like super roundabout. But <laughs> that about me. It's all good. Well, hopefully our listeners will get to know that and love that about you as they listen <laughs> on for the next month. Uh, but, uh, I, but hey, I wanted to also mention, uh, speaking of a whole other podcast, um, something exciting. Uh, when we first got in touch with you back in, in 2018, um, you were just about to start your own podcast, Print Screen. Um, yes. how, how's that going? It's going really well. Well, I mean, it's we, I finished the first season in April. Very cool. Congratulations. Was, thank you. That was really lovely. I it kind of forced me to think about voice and sound and how to uh talk to people in an interview and how to um you know, uh how to create content that's not read because what you write to be spoken is very different from what you write to be read. So I learned a lot. Yeah. So can you kind of explain the the premise for listeners? Sure. It's basically a podcast about bridging the gap between analog and digital practices. So for instance, one of the two of the episodes actually, um, where I look at virtual reality you know, as kind of this mode of immersion, but then immersion is not some new concept. Like virtual reality is not new. Right. It's called something different. Um, you know, when you think about peat boxes and you think about Mario Ramas and, you know, those, those are kind of forms of immersive media that were being done kind of at the turn of the 19th century. So this idea of, being immersed in an environment that is not, you know, your immediate environment, that's like, that's not new. And so I think a lot of what I'm trying to do with print screen is to say, hey, contemporary artists are working on things that have been investigated for many years. And this is kind of the older technology. And 
it's almost trying to make the older technology cool again. And, you know, and, you know, one of the artists that inspired the immersion, the two part episode, you know, um, or two part, I guess, series about immersion was Christina Corfield, uh, who's a Bay Area based artist and, and scholar and writer. But she, I, her whole practice is about you know, investigating old media and making it new again. And I, I, I really love that. You know, mm. I love that idea. Yeah, there was um, a guy that we interviewed a while ago, and I'll have to put his name in the show notes or a link because um, his name escapes me right now. But he was doing a project um, where they were taking over um, – it was kind of the idea of pirate um, pirate TV stations, and they were taking over these old. You know, they were they actually drew up a, a map of the U.S. and saw where all the different stations were broadcasting from, and kind of found like these weak spots in these zones. Um, and they were broadcasting TV shows from the back of this like Aerostream uh, <laughs> trailer. Um, like pirate broadcasts and they were talking about um like land ownership issues um and so they would it was like set up like a breakfast sort of like coffee talk show um but they were bringing together like these farmers and environmentalists and developers to all kind of have um conversations about uh land ownership disputes um in these areas but one of the foundations was um, kind of like you just mentioned, trying to like, uh, reinvigorate these old technologies and just like, you know, I mean, it, in the era where like everything retro is cool again, um, yeah. you know, just kind of like pump some life back into analog technology. It was a very cool interview. That, yeah. Oh gosh. I, I mean, I would really love to listen to it because I, the first episode I did for print screen was with you know, um, scholar, a media scholar and artist, Anna Friz, and she's Canadian. And, um, one of the things that she was talking about in one of her recent projects was, uh, you know, kind of, uh, radio kind of the reason why she's so fascinated with sound and radio, because she did kind of create a radio play with Emmanuel, Madan, who was her collaborator on, on the Joy Channel, which is a project that she worked on, it kind of speculated, the prompt was, you know, um, the prompt was, oh, what what is radio going to be like, you know, 100 years from now? And one of the things that she, you know, that her and her, you know, collaborator kind of brought up was there would be like these emo caps, so, or something of that nature where it would enable people to kind of, telepathically like communicate and um the only way that people could really do that in the future you know if we think about this is is through the radio because it's not and something i really truly truly love about anna's work is it's if you if we think about the radio it's not a difficult technology to actually like to create one right you know that's like one of the things that i really loved about my interview with her and how um, and it seems very much tied to kind of, you know, the themes that you brought up with that, you know, the podcast you were talking about, because that's something that her and, you know, Madan actually kind of investigated, you know, like what would happen to, 
would borders exist, you know, if, if, if things were, if there, if that, if there, if statehood wasn't, you know, um, like if, if, if states kind of existed or ceased to exist, how then would people communicate with each other? And I mean, I think she explains it way more eloquently than I just did, but yeah, I, I really, I mean, I, I love the entire season, but I just thought I'd call that out because it's along the same lines and, um, and she's, so definitely someone that makes me think about sound differently. Like I, there's so many things that you can communicate with sound that you can't do with, you can't, sometimes you just can't get your point across in writing sometimes. And I think that's the reason why I'm also entering the field of doing creative work that incorporates a lot of sound because people also just don't listen. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm laughing because people, I, people don't like talking on the phone anymore. And for you, for people to talk on the phone, like how, how interesting is it that we've come to a we've come we've come to a time where when you receive a call it's it's perceived as an emergency mm-hmm. you know yeah so. or an intrusion or an intrusion <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird like yeah. <laughs> i i hate it but i do it myself where like someone totally normal you know like my family will call me and i'm like what what do they want what are, what can they possibly want on a Saturday afternoon while I'm sitting here doing nothing. <laughs> like, my time is important. Text me before you call. We have to schedule these things. We're not fucking barbarians. We're not animals. This right? is why we have texting. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, okay. So I think I shared this. With, and gosh, I, I, I feel like I told you so much, Andrew. But, like, <laughs> one of the things that I... I feel was, was really, um, timely. I think also in the past two years that I've been in school is I'm really fascinated by the telephone and its Mm. evolution from its inception to, you know, there's a materiality to the phone and the phone is very still very much material, but because it's become a computer simultaneously, um, you know, there are different kind of, uh, interventions and performance and conceptual pieces that I'm looking at currently and probably for like the rest of my life because it, I'm so intrigued by this, but how people are using the telephone, like subverting its use. Because I, one of the projects that I'm, I'm really fascinated by, um, is this, it's an app. Um, it's an app called uh, dial up. Have you heard? No, I'm very, I'm very curious though. Yeah. So, um, dial up is an app that randomly call connects people. I shouldn't say calls people. It, It randomly, um, you know, uh, connects people through these different lines. Um, so like you basically, uh, oh gosh, how, what's the best way to describe this? So you, you basically download dial up and then you subscribe to these different lines. So you could subscribe to week, this line called weekend project. So every set, like not every Saturday, but, um, or no, no, actually every Saturday, sorry, every Saturday, like morning, and it's it's not it, it's not every every Saturday at nine nine a.m. It's kind of randomized times. Um, dial up will signal that like to get ready because there's you know it's going to connect you with someone who also wants to talk about their weekend projects, hmm. but you don't know who this person is. It's a stranger. Yeah, and I've gotten into some really fascinating conversations. And, um, I, you know, and I, I really, I really actually love the, um, the app and I'm trying to, 
remember because it's Danielle, but I want to say the last name and we'll probably have to put this in the show notes because the creators, um, uh, Max Hawkins and Danielle and oh my gosh, I, I feel absolutely horrible. (laughs) (laughs) For for not remembering, um, you know, uh, for not remembering her name. I got it. I'm almost there. (laughs) See, there we go. Nailed it. Uh, So, yeah, Danielle Baskin and Max Hawkins are the creators of Dial-Up. And I absolutely love it because I also, I think you perform differently with strangers. Mm. You know, like, I think I have that kind of. Um, I have made the sad realization that I, there are some things I can tell a stranger that I can't even like tell my mom, for instance. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, the reason why I love it is because it's an intervention in the way that we use the telephone. And, uh, I don't know if Danielle and Max are gonna, are gonna hear this, but I did, I did have a conversation about with Danielle about this, but, um, one of the things that I brought up was like, Hey, you know, I have a, I have a bit of a criticism. Like, why are there, why can you create private lines? So basically you can, there wasn't, there was a functionality of the app where like you could, you could, you can like uh, create a private line for you and family members. And I said, so isn't that just the phone? <laughs> what, what, what? Right. And it's, and, and she, she and Max, I mean, she, she gave me a really great reason for that. She said, well, you know, it's kind of like we're just testing this out. And, you know, we, we, we never know. You never know what's what what how the reception of something is going to be until you make it, you know. And uh, and she brought up some things that I didn't even, you know, I didn't really kind of consider where she said, yeah, you know, some people, they need the ran, they need the serendipitous push to have a conversation. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I'm not throwing shade to that. Like I totally agree, but there are other, when a community gets like a lot larger and a lot bigger, you know, you, there's some people who are just also creepy. Right. Right. But the reason why I'm so fascinated by projects like this, and to me, this is an art project, even though some people are just like, Oh, it's just kind of like a social experiment, but it's kind of beyond that, you know? And I think that's the reason why I love, uh, I love work like this that kind of pushes or so, uh, much more interestingly, so subverts a technology. Hmm. So, you know, yeah. Those are the. I mean, those are the types of things I actually am trying to. Yeah, I'm gonna stop because you want to ask me something. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's just that's it's such an interesting. Like, I, I think um, there's something to there's something vulnerable about talking to people face to face um and having like a real dialogue there's something you know i think the um the appeal of texting like the appeal of of communicating via text is that you have all the time not, i mean not all the time in the world but you have an ample amount of time to craft like how you want something to be perceived um and there's something very implicit about uh, good communication that it's, you know, my, my dad had all these awesome little like one liner words of wisdom. And one of the things he used to always say was, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what people hear. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that like, it takes real skill and like, you have to take time to polish that and to like really figure out how to make yourself clear and like do it tactfully and, you know, all those like weird situations. So it's funny that like, you know, I think it's a very interesting um, 
it's it's a very interesting social experiment, but it's something that I think like goes against a human's natural tendency. Like I think you might be a little different because you're a person who I think really like uh uh sort of thrives on those random interactions, but I think I most do. people are really intimidated by that. <laughs> I yeah, I you know, I think that's another reason why I was um you know, at the wedding, I actually, you know, because it was a, it was a small gathering. It was like a lot of it was her loved ones. And I, you know, um, one of her really dear friends, we both read tarot cards. And he said, oh, uh, Vivian told me that you read tarot. Like you need to you need to read my cards if you if that's OK. And I think the reason why I'm saying this uh, or like kind of because you're, you're making a correlation between like my fascination with, you know, um, like I'm open to those kind of interactions. Right. But What's really interesting is a lot of people will trust a horoscope written by someone they don't know. Right. But do you see what I'm saying? It's like there's so right. many things in the world that, you know, people are like, I would never do that. But I'm like, oh, but you do this. Right. You know, it's, it looks and feels and sounds and <laughs> language around something is so different, but it's not too different. Yeah. Like you trust your doctor, but you don't talk to your doctor every day. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> we were, uh, my wife who, as you know, is, uh, she's actually overdue at this point. We're like waiting on pins and needles for this baby to be born. But, uh, <laughs> we were joking around the other day about all the things, you know, like there's like all the old wives tales of all the things that, uh, you're supposed to do to speed up, uh, the, the, the actual delivery of the baby. And I, it, it was just so funny. We were talking about how, like, as soon as you want something, how quickly your brain is willing to get superstitious and like yes. uh, believe things that you would never typically believe, but because of the change in environment, because like, well, now I want something like now, now I have skin in the game. So yeah, fuck it. Let's try whatever, whatever's going to work. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think, and I think that's the reason why I'm equally, I'm, 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 cause people are just like, oh, you work in science, but then you go to acupuncture, you know? And I go, yeah. well, technically acupuncture is clinically proven to work. So number one, there's that. Right. But also there's something, there's something magical in my own practice about being witchy woo. -woo. Like I think science can answer certain things, but science also is cyclical. Like there's always some other clinical research study that's trying to not just hypothesize, but prove a previous hypothesis incorrect or show it, show it in a different way or show better data to prove yet another point. It's like, this is just kind of the, the cyclical nature of being human and the human condition. So in my mind, I think that's the reason why I'm open to things like that. And I, I, I kind of, maybe that's one of my kind of life's goals is like, I want more people to be more open. I want people to be a little bit more expansive about the way they think, you know, it's like, even new media and digital art, I mean, computational media alone, people just kind of look at that and they're just like, where does that fit? Like, why, why are games art? You right. know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to like, you know, even as an artist, it's exhausting because you're, you know, you're already making art and you yourself have to believe in it. And then you step it, you step out into the world and then it's a no, a whole nother exercise to get other people to believe you. So that's why, yeah. you know, there is a part of me that there's a bit of magic behind that too, where I'm not going to show you all the bells and whistles because I want you to believe in something and maybe do it on your own too. You yeah. know, it's like, it's kind of like working with undergrads, you know, they're cool, too cool for school. And then you're like, oh, you think you're original, but like 30 years ago, someone did this. And then, <laughs> 
You know, it's like, I think that's the, that's the beauty of, of being an educator. It's like, you know, is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I love, uh, not to overly simplify your point, but <laughs> I love that Doc Martens are a thing again. Like, oh, yeah. Every like 15 years, man, the Doc Martens just come. Like for me, it was, it was the high school days in the 90s. But I know they were there in the 80s. They were there for the punks in the 70s and the 60s. Yeah. Doc Martens just keep coming back around. <laughs> but yes. No, and that's actually a real, that's an excellent uh, point. Yeah. Is that the, things are cyclical. And I think that that's, I think also as, you know, I, I don't want people to see me as an academic because even when I'm done with this degree and I'm out there and I'm teaching and, you know, I, I just want people to see me as another human being. Like I just really love cool shit yeah. and I just want to share it. And I think, I, I think that's the reason why history should be studied, you know, and it's not the, it's not just the cliche of like, Oh, you don't want history to repeat itself. Like actually history is always going to repeat itself. If you, if you're not actually learning it, like maybe that's the point is that, you get enough people to be conscious, you know, yeah. um, sounds super idealistic, but I, you know, I think that that's kind of, that's one of the things at the heart of, of why probably teachers become teachers, you know? Yeah. Well, I could keep going on this train of thought for a long yeah. time with you. I feel like we could split a bottle of wine and keep going anonymous almost any topic, Dorothy. Yeah. And the baby might be, might be here anytime. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> So it's probably time that we actually introduce the, uh, the theme of the month. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, so we, uh, we approached you, uh, you know, with, with pride coming up. Um, we had this sort of general theme and idea of doing something around LGBTIA, queer art, queer artists. Um, and, you know, what we like to do at the show whenever we bring guest hosts on is we don't like to prescribe too much. We want to kind of give our guest hosts the the reins um, and kind of let them take the topic whatever direction they want to. So um, so first of all, thank you for for taking the reins this month for us. Um, and uh, can you can you kind of give the the listeners a little bit of an idea for what this month is going to entail? Oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing. That's, um, I, you know, I'm, I, may I share who I'm talking to or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I am speaking with Anum Awan. I am, uh, also talking to Yashan She, uh, Bruno Nunez and Lark VCR. And, uh, it, oh, I just, I, I don't want to say any more, but I, I, I'm definitely examining and talking about queerness through these different facets of artistic practice. So whether it's comics, you know, creative coding and like using programming languages to do incantations and, um, you know, looking at how, you know, a, a, a UX designer is, you know, you know, doing um, work with their collective and, creating these kind of different experiences, but through the lens of like Sufism and, you know, and then, um, and also like Asian pop culture and like how queerness is kind of mediated through anime and manga and different kind of films and television shows. And it's filled with really, I don't know. I mean, I'm super biased, but all of my guests are incredible, phenomenal human beings. And I'm, I feel really lucky that they all said yes to, having a conversation with me. Yeah. I'm glad that, uh, 
I, I'm so excited that that we're working together. You're you're so much fun and uh, such a wealth of information by yourself. But um, but I'm also really excited. I mean, it seems like these are this gave you a good excuse to kind of reach out to these people and connect with them and uh, and feature them, kind of give you the platform to do that on. Yes, I am super excited. So yeah, so I'm, and thank you, thank you so much to you and Ethan and. Vanessa and, and Wes, I'm, I'm just, I'm so, and Eddie, who's going to be illustrating, I'm super, I'm thrilled and excited. And I know that uh, my guests are also equally excited as well. Yeah. So we won't, we won't give too much away today because uh, we want you guys to tune in and listen on. But um, Dorothy, it's, it's been so much fun working with you so far. I'm looking forward to uh, listening to all of these episodes. Um, I think our, our listeners are really going to enjoy this month. Um, and I, I just really want to give you, I know there was, there was actually a little miscommunication at one point. You thought you signed on for one episode. We said, no, no, we need you to do four. And you did not blink. You absolutely did it. Uh, you know, not a lot of people realize quite how much work it can be, but it was a lot of work. So I want to just really, uh, extend our full, full gratitude for everything you're doing. Well, I, I mean, you can add witch to all of those uh, roles too. <laughs> I'm a total witch. <laughs> I make magic happen. It's Yay. true. <laughs> I, I was going to say, if you mean that in the sense that you wield absolute magic and I assume sometimes fly on a broom because it's awesome, then oh. I would agree with you. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, look, before we let you go, as as you know, as the listeners know, we got to do the rapid fire section of the uh, of the interview. So are you ready for that? I'm ready. Go bring it. Yes. All right. The first question, one of the most important questions that's ever been asked on the Internet. Would you rather fight one horse sized duck or one thousand duck sized horses? Oh, dear God. The first one. <laughs> what is it? The first one. Wait, what's the first one? A horse-sized duck. A horse-sized duck. I, I would totally fight a horse-sized duck. <laughs> over, a, oh. over a thousand duck-sized horses? Um, yeah, because it would be much more ep- epic for me to defeat a horse-sized duck. <laughs> you want the challenge. I understand. I, I want the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I want to be Arya Stark, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Odds against yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. Second question is, what is your favorite guilty pleasure song? Like song you're embarrassed to talk about in polite company, but that you just crank when it comes on the radio. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> oh, the first song that came to mind was um, Stir Fry by Migos. I feel like, <laughs> it's, I think it's just because it's so like danceable and it's just something that, you know, then again, it's like also like Cardi B, some of her songs, but like that was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> I love it. Hey, man, catchy is catchy, right? Yeah, no, totally. And then last but not least, and you already led into this with the Aria comment. How do you feel about the way Game of Thrones ended? Oh, you know, actually... I'm not as disappointed as a lot of other people are. And yeah, I was one of those kind of diehard fans that I I did kind of watch, you know, I didn't watch at the start of like 2011, you know, that's not when I started watching it, but I was a faithful watcher and um, I wasn't surprised. Um, I wasn't 
grossly, obscenely disappointed, but I wasn't ecstatic. I was mm. kind of like neutral. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And you know, for people that complain and I don't care because I know people might be like, no, how dare you say this? Um, but I think it's because, um, to do an episode takes a lot of time, effort and money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so just the kind of that in and of itself is a feat. Yeah. So I, I was just happy to kind of to see it, you know, be the way it was. And as even, even if it didn't fulfill every like point, um, you know, it's, it's everything comes to an end and sometimes it's not the end that we always want. And such as, as, as is life, you know, there you go. Did you see the, uh, there's like a documentary on HBO now that was like a behind the scenes of the whole last season. Oh, you know what? I probably will watch that tonight. <laughs> I did actually see that and I, I will probably go to sleep watching that. Very nice. Yeah, it definitely gives you an appreciation for just the the scope of the work that goes into one of those seasons. So I yes. hear you. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Yeah, this, uh, like I said, I'm looking forward to this month so much. Listeners, check it out. Stay tuned. Uh, this month, we'll be handing the reins over to Dorothy Santos. So you are in good hands. awesome bye 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 as always listeners thank you for tuning in to this episode of state of the art and uh, if you like what we're doing here at state of the art or if you like this episode please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts five star reviews are always great that's the most helpful thing you can do to help us to help us grow and to find other awesome listeners that like the same things you do So thank you so much again, and I hope you tune in next week for another episode of State of the Art.